Today's reading is from Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 26 through 31, and 2, 17 through 19. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the earth, birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks again, Gage. Appreciate you doing that twice. And good morning, everybody. My name is Scott, and uh, we are here in the middle of the summer, and it is wonderful to greet you here. I'm, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Christ Pres. If we haven't met, along with uh, Derek and, and the several others that Gage had mentioned in prayer, which we're really grateful for. We need prayer. Please pray for us. Um, we are in the middle of our summer series right now called the battle within. We're talking about the internal struggle of, of what it means to be a human being uh, in a world that's fallen and broken. And today we're going to talk about anti-climax, uh, the experience of being let down, the experience of feeling like we're always dreaming about and envisioning a lot more than we're ever, ever actually able to accomplish. And uh, really what I, what I mean here is that we're going to talk about work, the work we do as volunteers, the work we do uh, for hire work. So there was a global Gallup poll that was done uh, not too long ago that reveals that what the whole world wants more than anything else is a good job. More than food, more than shelter, more than safety, more than peace. The whole world wants a good job. And maybe it's because of what another poll recently done also reveals, and that is that 87% of workers around the world feel disengaged from and dissatisfied in their work. So there's this movie called Office Space, and 
Um, you know, you have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. It was, you know, produced by the Beavis and Butthead people. So, um, so it's, a, it's, it's a bit of a sarcastic uh, and yet quite realistic take on what it means to be stuck in the middle of your organization with no opportunity for advancement. And the so-called protagonist's name is Peter. And one day, Peter gets so depressed about his work that he uh, goes in and sees a, a therapist, and he says this to the therapist, so I was sitting in my cubicle today, and I realized ever since I started working, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's the worst day of my life. And then they got into talking about why he felt so unmotivated, and the therapist asked him to describe a, a typical day at work, and he says, I would say that in a given week, I probably only do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. So Dorothy Sayers uh, wrote uh, an essay on vocation, and it's called Why Work? Question mark. And she says this. She says that there is a significant crisis. And, and, and the reason why, according to Dorothy Sayers, 80% of people who are workers feel disengaged and dissatisfied is because of the church. And she says this, the church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished, the church is, to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. And so, what I think we have in front of us here in Genesis is the answer to the woes of Peter in office space, of the Gallup poll and the other poll, and really what we have is a text in front of us that, that, that dignifies all good work, that enables us and, and even empowers us to reimagine perhaps even the dissatisfying anticlimactic scenario that we're in right now, and gives us new eyes of meaning and purpose. And so, so what I want to do is just explore three questions and, and try to answer each one of them from, from the Scripture. One is, why do we work? The second one is, why does it matter? And the final one is, where is it taking us? So why do we work? The reason why we work is it's in our blood. It's, it's in our DNA. It is a, it is a primal uh, thing that is built into the hardwiring of the human race because we are made in the image of God. And the very first thing that God tells us about Himself, the very first words of the Bible, the very first words of human history, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God put His hands in the dirt after He made the dirt. <laughs> after He spoke the dirt into existence, He puts His hands into the dirt, and for six days, He creates water, earth, and sky, and creatures, and plants, all to be a hospitable space for the flourishing of the ones who would be the crown of His creation, made a little less than the angels, as it says in Psalm 8, the human being, Adam and Eve, and all of their descendants, which would include us. So after each day of creation, God, it says, looks at what He'd made, say He made water. He looked at the water and He said, it's good. Say that he made land on another day, and 
he looked at the land and, you know, the, the earth and the form of it, and he said, it's good. Uh, he made the plants and the animals and looked at what he'd made, and he said, it's good. And then after the sixth day of creation, he makes a superlative statement because on the sixth day, he creates the crown of his creation, man and woman, and he says that it's very good. And then God speaks, and, and, and the first command that God speaks to the human race is what we could call the first great commission. And the first great commission is when God commissions Adam and Eve and all of their descendants to get to work, to take the garden and work it, to, to take the raw material that God has, has given them in His creation and, and, and develop it and make it beautiful, cultivate it, or in other words, make some culture. And that's what vocation is. It's a culture-making endeavor. You know, Tim Keller talks a lot about how history uh, in the Scriptures begins in a garden, but it ends in a city, which, which presupposes that there is a work of development that's ongoing where God is, is developing His world through human hearts, human imagination, human hands, human effort, human work. And so the key truth here is that all good work, which, which basically means any kind of work that involves creating something that benefits people, places, and or things, or restorative work, or healing work, you know, any, any kind of work that goes into, into a place or, 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 or picks up a thing or, or uh, looks at a person and gets to work in order to restore that which is broken to restore that which is in decay, it's good work and qualifies as a meaningful contribution to the mission of God to make all things new. Not all new things, all things new. And so, so what the text is telling us here is that as the image of God, being vocational creatures, and it matters not whether it's for a paycheck, getting to work to create or to restore and redeem. This kind of work is necessary for our fulfillment. It's necessary for our flourishing. You know, God put work into creation before the fall happened, before sin came into the world and corrupted everything, before the curse happened. God put work into paradise. So work is part of paradise, which means that in the new heaven and the new earth, it's not an everlasting worship service where we sing and listen to sermons. I, I will very likely be put out of a job. Physicians, mechanics, we will all be out of a job. I hope that I will be a musician in the new heaven and in the new earth. I don't, I don't know if, if you're in the restoring business. I'm not sure what you're hoping to do, but that's what I'm hoping to do. I want to play guitar like Jesse does and like Patrick does. The point is that God put work into paradise. Part of paradise is creating and doing things that produce. We're most fully alive when we're creating new things. We're most fully alive when we're restoring broken people and places and things. We're most fully alive when we're making a contribution that fulfills in some way, shape, or form the universal job description for every Christian which is to take 
the resources at your disposal, the imagination and, and, and brain that God has given you, uh, the opportunities, the networks to take it all and leverage it to leave the world better than you found it. As a bit of a sign that resurrection has happened and is coming, and, and, and Jesus Christ is making all things new, and you're a, participate, you're a participant, an active participant in that process. So, you know, if somebody wants to argue, you know, we don't really need work. I mean, actually, the, the goal in life is to retire early, right? No, it's not. And here's why. All the way back to childhood, we know that we have to be vocational creatures. I mean, what do little girls and boys do? They pull out paper and crayons, and, and, and they start, you know, putting what's in their imagination on a piece of paper because they are wired to create. Or the Legos come out first thing in the morning, and it starts with, um, you know, construction and then deconstruction. It starts with, you know, building something and then some demolition work, and, 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 and the process repeats itself. We have toy lawnmowers. We have toy ovens and stoves. We have, we have uh, uh, toy trucks. Little children insist on helping in the kitchen, you know, to, to create meals and, and to clean up and such, Right? It's in the hardwiring. It's part of being human. It doesn't even have to be taught on some level. And then the adult in us, the more sophisticated, you know, worldly wise person in us will say, well, yeah, but that's little children. You know, when, when, you, when you get into to, to work and you, you start to see all the frustration and the toil and, and such, you, you start to understand that, that, that the most important time of the week, the most significant time of the week is, is you know, your day off and your vacation. And, and, you know, if you can retire young, you know, that's even better and, and, until you retire. And then you start asking yourself, don't you? Maybe not out loud, but you start asking in your heart at least, who am I without my work? What's my purpose? You know, even, even, you know, if I become physically disabled, I, I still have a meaningful work to do in, in, in intercessory prayer and, 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 and in encouraging people with my words because the words that we speak are, are, are work as well, that, that, that either speak life or death into somebody else's life. And, 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 and so there's always something to contribute so the reason why we work is it's, it's in our hardwiring. It's how we're created. So the second question is, what does it matter? It matters because all good work, all work that creates, all work that restores is a continuation of God's creative and God's restorative activity in the world. Good and faithful work, like I've already said, seeks to leave the world better. So take music, for example. We're in Music City. Um, you know, just spoke with an artist that got on a plane this morning to get home at 5 o'clock you know, on tour. Spoke with another musician last night. Uh, musicians everywhere in Nashville. Very significant work, that work of music. Because what does music do? Music takes raw material, the raw material of sounds and words and thoughtfully arranges them with intentionality, with creativity, with imagination. And then out comes a song or a record or a score. Out it comes. And, and, and when it comes out, into the world comes a new power that brings 
other human beings who are exposed to it in touch with deeper reality. It stirs the soul, and in many ways it heals the heart. Even Nietzsche, who's just sort of the father of cynicism, you know, as an existentialist philosopher, had an optimistic point of view about music when he said, in music, the passions enjoy themselves, and without music, life would be a mistake. Another example is, is maintenance work. I, I told this um, story, if you were at the, um, the launch event for Nashville Institute for Faith and Work uh, this past year, uh, I told a story about an encounter I had with, with a man who was a, a, a career janitor. And um, so we, we were at a, at a dinner together, just some common friends invited us over to dinner at the house, and we got into the kind of what do you do conversation, which is always awkward for me, um, <clears throat> at least initially, until I understand where the other person's coming from with God and such. But, but we got into his story, and I said, you know, what, what do you do with your days? What do you put your hands to? And his answer was um, a little bit, a lot, actually, concerning to me, because he looked at me and he said, eh, I just push a broom. And, and the word that struck out to, or that stood out to me when he said, I just push a broom, was the word just. Because I, I had to think, you know, in that moment to myself, what, what would the world be like without sanitation? <laughs> what would this room be like? What would this table in front of us be like without sanitation? work going on faithfully every single day. And so, Bob Bradshaw, who's kind of my partner in crime here, uh, executive director, sort of, you know, leads the staff in, in fulfilling our vision and mission as a church. And he likes to talk about the story of, of another janitor who uh, was working at uh, Cape Canaveral when they were uh, getting ready to send the man up to the moon, Right? And so President Kennedy showed up before the, the historic event, and he was touring the facilities, and in the hallway came across the janitor who was, um, you know, sort of sweeping in the hallway, and, and President Kennedy said, what are you doing here? And the janitor looked back at him and said, well, sir, nice to meet you, Mr. President. I'm doing the same thing you're doing. I'm launching a rocket. That's where the imagination needs to go, not because it's fairy tale, but because it's true. That we're all, whatever we're doing, whatever we've been given to do and gifted to do and networked to do and resourced to do, whatever we are given to do, we are part of something bigger. We are launching something that's bigger than ourselves. And it's, a, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable privilege to be Part of this thing, which I'll unpack a little bit more in a minute, but the Latin word vocare is, is the word that we get our word vocation from. And it's a word that means calling. So Frederick Buechner said this, the kind of work that God usually calls you to is the kind of work that A, you need most to do, and B, that the world most needs to have done. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And, and the question then is, well, why are 87% of the people in the world not happy with what they're doing if, if, if that's, that's what it's supposed to look like? I believe 
that in many of those cases, and I think the, the Scriptures guide us to believe that it's not because the job is unsatisfactory, but because our imaginations about the purpose and point and meaning of the role is unsatisfactory and plagued with amnesia. We forget how mothers, for instance, image God in the work that they do as the nurture of God flows through them to form young hearts or artists and entrepreneurs and the creativity of God that, 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 that comes through their work, or government uh, uh, employees and, and executives, how the rule and sovereignty of God is expressed through their leadership. Accountants, how important numbers are to God. There's even a book in the Bible called Numbers, right? But God is a God of order. God is pleased with spreadsheets. Healthcare, counselors, the healing grace and goodness of God, therapists, educators, the wisdom of God, students, the imagination of God and the vision of God, nonprofit work, the mercy of God, fashion and grooming, the beauty of God, marketing and advertising, the evangelistic nature of God, the, 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 that thing in God that, that, that compels Him to go out and herald good news. So, so what if we were to rethink missions and mission altogether? You know, the traditional mindset is this. There's a hierarchy. There are vocational ministry people like me and missionaries and um, parachurch workers and, and, and such, and everybody else's job is to make money in order to fund the important stuff that's going to last, right? I mean, the, nobody says that, but that's, that's, I think, how some of us feel, especially if we're in the 87%, that I'm just here to fund what God is doing through somebody else, and that, that's, that's why I work, and to provide a little bit and that sort of thing. But what if we rethought missions, and, 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 and instead of, 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 of getting our, our view of mission, of the mission of God from, from counterfeit thinking, go straight back to the source, the Scriptures themselves, which would lead us to also think about commissioning artists and doctors and educators and students and government workers and baristas and athletes and moms and dads and intercessors and attorneys and landscapers and salespeople and physical therapists and occupational therapists and, 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 and so on and so forth into the world. You know, if a world-famous evangelist was once asked, have you ever considered running for president of the United States, because some of us believe you're popular enough to do that. And his answer was, well, I have a higher calling. And with all due respect to the famous evangelist, he was creating a false dichotomy. No such thing as a higher calling. Did you know that, I got this from Missy Wallace, this is her insight. Did you know that Jesus spent more time working as a carpenter than he did in vocational ministry? You know, Madeline Lengel said this. She said that there is nothing so secular that it cannot be sacred. And that is one of the deepest messages of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is why we started this thing out of Christ Prez about a year ago called the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. What this organization out of our church is designed to do is nothing more and nothing less than rekindling the Christian imagination such that we would understand 
that all good work is participation in the mission of God. And when you know that, and when you, when you go into what you're doing with that in mind, it completely changes the way that you do what you do. It completely changes the way you interact with the people around you. It completely changes the way you look at everything. So why do we work? What does it matter? Where is it taking us? That's the last question. Do we just and should we just settle for anticlimax? Or is there a climax yet to come that if we would only persevere and continue to continue to, to kindle our imaginations for what we have been told is true in the sacred scriptures about whatever our vocation may be, do we persevere? You know, it says here in verse 31, God, in whose image we're created, God saw everything that He had made, and it was very good. He celebrated it. He celebrated creation. He was satisfied. He was happy. And so, just the awareness that we're also made in the image of this same God, that's what drives us to want to get to a place where we can take pride in our work and be satisfied. That's what makes us unhappy being in the 87% because we're, we're, we're envisioning more than we've accomplished. We're dreaming of more than what's there. We're, we're hoping and aspiring to something that, that we seriously doubt will ever happen. And so we're discouraged instead of being able to look at our work with a, with a redemptive big picture imagination. You know, Genesis 3 confirms this sinking feeling and anticlimactic experience. When God says to Adam, because of sin, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. And even people with the best jobs dream of greatness. But even those who reach greatness, whatever greatness is, it ends in anticlimax. Because as we talk about here often, because it's important to put in front of us, in a world where we can often purchase the delay of the thought of death, the mortality rate is one person for every one person. So the king of the hill eventually gets buried under the hill even and so, what's the point? You know, we're back to this sort of Ecclesiastes, everything is meaningless, everything is vain. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of, it seems like, helplessly stuck between this primal instinctive need to contribute and the inability that we feel to do it well, and, and even if we do it well, to sustain it for the long term. So why do we keep going? The reason why we keep going is there is more to what we do than meets the eye. What you are doing when you change a diaper, when you correct an error on a spreadsheet, when you run a country, when you give yourself a shower, what you're doing is participating in a trajectory that you may not be fully aware of, but it's still there, a trajectory toward perfection and beauty and glory and everlasting bliss. 
So my favorite work frustration story, you'll know this if you've been around for a while. Forgive the repetition, but I'll say this for the sake of the new ones and for the sake of all of us, because as Luther said, the reason why, when he was asked, why do you preach the gospel every week? And his answer was, because you forget the gospel every week, and I forget the gospel every week. So that's why I preach the gospel every week. We're chronic amnesiacs. So here's Leaf by Niggle again. Written, short story written by J.R.R.R.R.R.R.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien was, was feeling very frustrated with, with, with a work that he was pouring himself in, a project. And so to emotionally process the frustration he was feeling, he wrote this short story about a little artist named Niggle who was commissioned by a small town city hall to, 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 to paint a mural on the side of the, the city hall. And and so he envisioned this beautiful tree that he was going to paint on the side of City Hall. And, and it was there in his mind, and it was magical, and it was going to be so wonderful that the whole world was going to want to come see it. It was going to be kind of like Mona Lisa 2.0 in his mind. And, and so he starts the work, and, and he spends his, the, the duration of his whole career on, on this, this you know, mural, trying to get this tree painted. And the only thing he was able to eke out in his entire career was one little leaf, and then he dies, and he's on the train to heaven. And on the train to heaven, he sees this vaguely familiar thing, object in the distance. And, and he says to the conductor, please stop the train, stop the train, sir. And the conductor stops the train. He gets off of the train, and he goes up to this thing, and he sees that it's the tree that he imagined, except it's more beautiful, more breathtaking, more fruit-bearing than he even imagined. And there on the tree, that leaf that he contributed and, and, and now he sees in ways that he didn't see in his frustration that he was contributing to launching a rocket. There was no just about painting that leaf. He was contributing to the launching of a rocket, to putting a man on the moon, to leaving the world better than he found it. I love what um, Missy Wallace passed this quote on, me, uh, on to me this morning after, after the first service said, you know, you really ought to read this from uh, Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf from their, their book on vocation, Every Good Endeavor. And this sort of Alsdorf and Keller's interpretation of Leaf by Niggle. And it's this, there really is a tree. Whatever you are seeking in your work, the city of justice and peace, the world of brilliance and beauty, the story, the order, the healing, it is there. There is a God. There is a future healed world that He will bring about, and your work is showing it in part to others. Your work will only be partially successful on your best days in bringing that world about. But inevitably, that whole tree that you see, the beauty, the harmony, justice, comfort, joy, and community will come to fruition. If you know all this, you will not be despondent that you can only get a leaf or two out of this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. So I buried a 35-year-old about a dozen years ago. He was diagnosed with an uh, uh, incurable cancer. And shortly before he died, I asked him what he was looking forward to the most in the new heaven and the new earth. And he was a writer, and he said, what I look forward to in the new heaven and the new earth the most is no more writer's block. How can we be sure that his hope is anchored in something true and real and solid 
We can know this because the greatest work of all, the greatest work in human history ended in anticlimax. Jesus Christ, the consummate worker, left it better. He turned water into wine, calmed a storm at sea, made a blind man see, told a paralytic to get up and walk, and the paralytic got up and walked, raised a girl from death, cast demons out, and still his cousin John the Baptist, whose work was not working out for him as he had imagined, said, Jesus, are you the one that the prophets promised would come to heal the world? Or Thomas, who had spent three solid years witnessing all of these things when he hears the news that Christ has come up from the dead, says, I will not believe until I see it with my own eyes. Or Judas, whom Jesus had poured into for three solid years, betrays him. Discouraged parents, nobody, nobody has been a perfect parent like God has been a perfect parent. And even still, the anticlimax came for him. Peter, one of his besties, one of his inner ring, betrayed him three times, denied him. All of them, all the disciples, fled the cross. Do you know what Jesus' most popular nickname was for his disciples? Oh, you of little faith, little faith ones. It's one word in the Greek, oligopistoi. So back to Leaf by Niggle. Um, so that story was written out of frustration because of a work that, that Tolkien had poured his guts into for years, and, and it just seemed like it was getting no momentum, wasn't going to see the light of day. And uh, that work was called the Lord of the Rings Trilogy. He never got to see the full fruition of that work, though, in his own lifetime, a lot like the prophet Isaiah whose job, you know, Matt McAvoy showed me a picture today of a, of a circuit breaker electric box, and there was a sign on that circuit breaker box that said this, not only will this kill you if you touch it, it will hurt the whole time that you're dying. <laughs> That's kind of like the message that God gave Isaiah to, to preach to the nation of Israel. You know, if you touch the law of God and the holiness of God and the character of God in an inappropriate way, not only will it kill you, it will hurt you the whole time you're dying. Isaiah never saw any fruit. His life ended, you know, the, the history books tell us that, that in all likelihood he was sawn into by people who hated his preaching. Just fire me if you hate my preaching. Don't, don't saw me in two, please. Give me a chance at another church. I hope that never happens. Um, but now, Isaiah, the most quoted prophet in the New Testament, the one whose words are sung uh, every year at Handel's Messiah, one of the most magnificent works of art that's ever been created. Isaiah. Isaiah, if anybody's life was filled with anticlimax, it was his. Yeah, but here you've got Jesus, too. At the end of Jesus' career, the optics are not good. Despised and rejected, he finishes on a cross. So why did he do all this? Why did he get into this anticlimactic work? Because of, of a climax that was yet to come. It says in Hebrews, the reason why he did any of it was for the joy that was set before him. And what was the joy? The joy was found. It can be found in Philippians 1.6. You are the joy. What you are becoming, the caterpillar that is you will become a butterfly. The, 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 the acorn that is you will become an oak tree. 
The little seed that is you will become orchard, and then orchards upon orchards that, that, that can feed the whole world. For the joy set before him, he who began a, a good work in you, a good work, a good endeavor, a good vocation in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You, Ephesians 2.10 says, are God's workmanship, literally his poema, his poetry. And then in Ephesians 5, once he completes that work of art that is you, you will be without blemish. You will be radiant. You will be like Christ, and you will see Him as He is. So we do have a Lord of the Rings in the future. We do. That little leaf that you've spent your whole life eking out when you envisioned a whole tree. If you know all this, back to Keller and Alsdorf, you will not be despondent that you can only get a leaf or two out of this life. You will work with satisfaction and joy. Back to Isaiah, it says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus, the suffering servant, will see the travail or the toil of his soul and look back and be satisfied. Here it is. And he invites us to look back with him. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this is my blood you know, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You look back. You look back on the travail of Jesus' soul. And you can be satisfied in that, knowing that it protected you from ultimate travail. And instead, as we've already sung this morning, we who were once his enemies can now be seated at his table. Jesus, thank you. Will you pray with me? Lord, teach us to see as you see. Help us understand that even this tiny cup and this tiny piece of bread represent and signal something bigger than the universe, the great love with which you have loved us, the body and the blood of Christ given for us, we do this in remembrance of me so that we can also, or, or of you, so that we can also remember the future that you have for us, that, that, that all anticlimax will give way to ultimate climax, that, that every little leaf will become part of that amazing tree that you're building, that tree that will be sitting there right in the middle of the city of God, which will be a tree for the healing of the nations. Set this bread and this cup apart. Feed us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.